This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So back on November 22nd, uh, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith announced $2.4 billion in affordability measures targeted support uh, to uh, vulnerable Albertans. And so there were a few different forms in which this was going to take. And some of this would be automatic to those already receiving uh, certain benefits. Uh, there would also be direct cash payments uh, to, to seniors, to families with dependent children. So the $100 installments. So how was all of this going to work? When could people expect to receive that money? Those are some of the questions we've had since then. So today we got some details. So joining us to, to go through the details, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alberta's uh, Minister for Affordability and Jobs, Matt Jones. Matt, uh, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so first of all, I mean, you know, this almost seven weeks since uh, the announcement. Talk a bit about the challenges then in putting all of this together. What, why, uh, you know, the, the gap from the announcement to, to the details now, finally? Uh, great question. It's, it's the largest relief package in Canada, and it does have uh, many components. There's significant broad-based relief through electricity rebates, fuel tax relief, natural gas and electricity price protection. And then today, uh, we've announced that uh, targeted relief affordability payments are coming this month, and that required legislation, regulation, and the development of effectively a, a portal that could get direct payments to Albertans. In terms of that portal, and I know the question's been asked, why, why use or why set up your own portal? Would it have been easier to, to use Canada Revenue Agency and, and go through the CRA? Uh, we looked at using the CRA as the, as the payment mechanism, and then it would have taken uh, months longer, likely April or beyond, and it would not have the flexibility that we now have with, a, with an Alberta-made portal. So if we were, were to look at extending or changing the scope or perhaps uh, administering uh, supports in the future, we could utilize the infrastructure that we've developed here today. Okay, so we'll go through the details. I did want to ask a question I've, I've got from a lot of people about whether any of this is taxable or any of these benefits taxable benefit. No, and that's uh, one, a great question. One of the reasons that this required legislation, these are not, these are not taxable payments and they will not impact uh, Albertans uh, who are qualifying for other core support programs. Okay, so uh, for, for some Albertans, those who are already receiving uh, seniors' benefits, et cetera, th this will be automatic. So uh, clarify things on, on that side. Who doesn't yeah. need to apply? Yeah, so if you're receiving assured income for the severely handicapped or AISH, income support to the Alberta seniors' benefit or services through uh, persons with developmental disabilities, the PDD program, or you're a foster or kinship caregiver, your payments will be automatic and, and no application is necessary. And you will see it by the end of January, likely pretty close to January 31st. Okay, so there is this portal, though, because uh, there are those who, I guess, will need to apply. So how does this work? Yeah, so that's parents of children uh, under 18 and seniors who are not uh, receiving the Alberta Seniors Benefit. There's a simple uh, two-step process. Essentially, they have to go to account.alberta.ca to confirm or sign up for an Alberta verified account. And then on or after January 18th, they can go back to uh, alberta.ca slash affordable or to any registry or to an Alberta supports office and uh, apply for benefits. And when can they expect these benefits? Uh, if, if they make their application uh, when the portal opens in late January, uh, they will receive their first payment at the end of January. Okay, so it's January 18th is when the portal opens? Correct. Okay. Uh, and this is meant to, to be uh, paid in it's six installments of $100? Correct. So once you've successfully applied for the benefit, you will, you will receive the other payments at, at the end of the next uh, five months. Uh, now, I had a couple of questions, too, but with regard to children, does that also apply in, in shared custody cases, or is that part of what the, the, I guess, the application process would determine? Yeah, in the case of shared custody, both parents would need to apply, and then the affordability payments would be split $50 per parent. So this is meant to be six months. Um, is, is that based on maybe an assumption that things will have improved by the middle of this year, or is this something that may be revisited later this year? Yeah, the idea was to reassess the situation. So we need to determine where cost of living and inflation is at uh, so that we can res respond appropriately. 
because the situation, as you've seen, uh, changed uh, relatively quickly, and we need to make uh, the appropriate decisions based on the circumstances of the day. What about the criticism that, you know, these measures do leave out uh, a lot of Albertans who are also struggling, you know, with cost of living challenges? Uh, I certainly heard that. Um, the, the broad-based relief that we've put out to the vast majority of Albertans is, is estimated at $900 per household for households not receiving these targeted payments. So that includes $500 in electricity rebates, fuel tax relief every time people fill up at the pump, and natural gas and electricity price protection. And just to put in uh, into perspective how significant the fuel tax savings can be, if, if you were to drive a truck in Alberta from an F-150 from July 2022 to July uh, 2023, you could save up to $800 uh, from our fuel tax relief. So it is significant, as is the $500 in electricity rebates. Okay, so again, to 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 apply to access the portal, it's uh, at the Alberta.ca government website? Yeah, uh, I would go to alberta.ca slash affordable. You can do everything there, and you can also learn about all the other affordability supports. The targeted payments are just one component, but a very important component to try to provide uh, normalcy for children uh, who have been through a lot over the last couple of years. All right, Minister Jones, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the overview. Thanks. Have a great day. You as well. Uh, That is Matt Jones. Uh, He is the uh, Minister of Affordability and Utilities uh, for the uh, Alberta government and uh, was part of this uh, announcement today. Just to clarify the title, uh, Affordability and Utilities. Uh, There was a separate jobs minister. Uh, So uh, leading, uh, you know, the the efforts on this, says the government is uh, committed to keeping Alberta affordable. By the end of January, most Alberta seniors and families will be able to apply for and receive monthly affordability payments that will provide real relief and help to offset inflationary pressures. So it will amount to $600 in affordability payments, $100 per month. So if you are already receiving uh, those benefits that he mentioned, H, income support, uh, the PDD, the persons with developmental disabilities, the foster and kinship caregivers, the Alberta Seniors Benefit Income Support, you'll receive those payments automatically. You do not need to apply. The application process is for parents with uh, children under 18 or seniors who do not receive uh, these these benefit programs that we mentioned. So then you will need to apply. Alberta.ca slash affordability, or rather, sorry, affordable, alberta.ca slash affordable. Uh, there's more information there. Uh, so there will be a need to, to go online to, to apply to set up an account in order to make sure that you receive those payments. January 18th is when the portal officially opens. And January 31st is when those payments will start rolling out. So the timing of you receiving a pen, uh, a, one of these payments it may depend then on when you are able to apply, basically. So it's not a guarantee you'll receive that initially. But so you, you, you want to make sure then I guess you're able to get in as soon as possible. So January 18th is when the portal will open through the Alberta government website, alberta.ca. And you can go to alberta.ca slash affordable. So $2.4 billion is what all of this is going to cost for these measures specifically. Obviously, you know, the minister mentioned some of the other steps they've taken regarding gas tax and, you know, support on utility bills, that sort of thing. There's additional costs associated with all of that. Right now, clearly, inflation, cost of living, it's top of mind for Albertans, top of mind for people right across the country. Uh, And I think people are looking to government to to take some action here. So is this a a reasonable response uh, to this challenge? Do you feel, though, maybe if you don't have children under 18, for example, and you're not a senior, that you're left out of this and that maybe this needed to be more broad based? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you uh, on this big Monday afternoon. We still got a lot to get to uh, in this hour. We will talk about you know whether we're doing enough to uh, pull our own weight when it comes to military spending 
Uh, and, of course, some of the commitments we've made to important allies, commitments, though, to Canadians, right, to ensure that the armed forces have what they need to protect us. Now, this comes on a day where we do have confirmation that Canada is going to purchase new fighter jets. We are going to purchase F-35s, despite the government's vow seven years ago that they would not purchase the F-35. So we probably could have been a lot further along on this front, but we'll get to that coming up after 2.30. A few other things we'll get to along the way, but certainly interesting times in the nation's capital, and uh, questions continue to grow around whether we might see an election this year and whether this prime minister intends to contest another election. The government seems to have a big agenda. Uh, we've uh, learned, of course, uh, more details about the uh, incoming legislation, forthcoming legislation, uh, to facilitate a so-called just transition. The Natural Resources Minister is speaking to that last week, says legislation is coming this year. Already, I think there's a lot of concern in Alberta as to what that might mean or what the federal government has in mind when it comes to transitioning those who work in oil and gas into something else. Of course, we're just coming out of the uh, the Christmas travel season and what a lot of chaos there's been for travelers uh, in airports right across the country. You know, despite the fact that we had similar problems earlier last year, uh, we just can't seem to figure this out. So what does the government need to do to address that? Some of the issues I want to explore with our next guest. Very pleased to be uh, joined here this afternoon by Michelle Rempel-Garner, Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary Nose Hill. Michelle, great to have you back with us here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Well, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Let's start with the question of what, what you're hearing or sensing about, you know, the government's plans for this year. Are we building up possibly to a 2023 election? What What's your sense? I think it all depends on Justin Trudeau's ego and whether he thinks he can get a majority government. I really don't think that at this point, particularly after we saw with him, saw what, he did to trigger the 2021 general election. This is about the health of, you know, Canadian democracy or the Canadian economy. This is really about whether or not he wants to run for office again um, and whether or not the Liberal Party will let him run. So, mm. you know, I'm sorry to sound so pessimistic the first time on your show in this year, but I, I think it's really about that uh, rather than anything else. And it'll be determined on whether or not Trudeau, A, wants to run again or B, sees an opening uh, for him to form a majority government, and that'll determine whether or not we're in an election in the spring. Um, at this point, I think that given where the Liberals are at in the federal polls, uh, the Conservative Party is showing some resurgence against the, the Liberal Party. Um, unless they can be assured of a path to victory, I, I think that it's unlikely. Um, but certainly, you know, there, there are a lot of Canadians who aren't aren't happy with the status quo of government and are more open to having an election and seeing a change in government. And that's something that the Trudeau Liberals are going to have to respond to uh, in the coming year. Well, indeed, yeah. And and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We can get into some of them. I, I did want to get your sense of, you know, what, what we're to make of the government's intention to bring in legislation to facilitate a so-called just transition. Because I think a lot of folks here in, in, in Alberta, especially those who work in oil and gas, obviously, are very nervous about this. What are you, you hearing? What, what do you make of this so far? Well, I think that the, the Liberals have failed on two fronts in the nearly decade that they've had in government. Number one, climate change is getting worse. Their policies have not address climate change. And the second thing is that the Canadian economy is in far worse shape than it was in 2015. So a lot of the policies they are putting in place, communication fronts, are are designed to de- like pull a tr- uh, any sort of attention away from those two facts. So I think what the Liberals want Canadians to engage in is a debate that does exactly that, pulls away from their failures on climate change, and pulls away from their failures to have energy security and economic growth for Canadians. So on the climate change front, you know, we're seeing greenhouse gas emissions increase and the Liberals have failed to do things that could materially impact climate change in Canada in a positive way, like building out public transit. How many times have you and I talked about the green line, right? Um, They have failed to address things like building out our electric grid, which would make it easier to um, have substitute goods for carbon, like electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are still scarce and they're highly priced. 
Um, but at the same time, we're now more dependent on foreign oil, which has emboldened um, despotic leaders like Vladimir Putin. Um, we're still importing oil from regimes that, you know, where, where women don't have the same equality that we have in Alberta, um, that don't have the same environmental standards that we have. And the Liberals are putting forward what are essentially flashy communication strategies, like the ones that you just mentioned, to try and distract away from the fact that they really have no nothing to stand on on either front. And I think that Albertans are uniquely positioned to call, I won't swear on your program, like <laughs> I did in the House of Commons, but BS on the Liberal government on both these fronts and just say, look, we are a province that supports environmental integrity. We support innovation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we also understand that we need to have energy security and that we need to have a source of energy, given that the Liberals have failed to give us alternatives to carbon energy in their entire time in office. So I think that the coming year we'll see a lot of Canadians hold the Liberals to account on this front, from not just from the right, but also from the left. And I think that that reckoning is long overdue, and I'm here for it. And I know that there's a lot of Calgarians, a lot of people that are listening to your show today of all political stripes that are there for that, too. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I, I did also want to ask you, and I know you've been hearing from a lot of folks, not, not just with travel, but I mean with associated issues like being able to get a visa, get a passport, but just, you know, the chaos we, we've seen again, you know, sort of for the second time in, in less than a year. <laughs> I mean, A, what are you hearing from people? And, and B, what, what needs to change? What, what needs to be fixed? I have to tell you, like, the last two quarters of 2022 were all about my office staff being inundated with desperate people trying to get passports, frustrated with airlines not meeting their obligations in a federally regulated industry, the immigration system just being an absolute chaos and a lot of questions about how it is that the federal government has ballooned the number of people who are working in the public service, ballooned the cost of government, but actually made service delivery far, far worse. Like, how does that happen? And that's something that I think the public is really going to hold the government to account on in coming elections. The fact that we're spending so much more money and getting worse service delivery in all these fronts. I, I know that my party has said to the government that the amount of backlog just in the complaints against airlines that haven't been resolved under existing consumer protection legislation, that backlog needs to be cleared. And that, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to the government that there was a pent-up demand for travel after COVID restrictions, right. that there would have been a pent-up demand for passport renewals after COVID restrictions. And that, I mean, hello, it's Canada, it's cold, it, it, it's winter here most of the year, that, you know, winter storms shouldn't be completely crippling the airline sector and airlines across the country. You know, th that's not a surprise. It shouldn't come as a surprise to airlines or the government. So, you know, saying, oh, it was cold and we had a snowstorm and that's the reason why many people across the country couldn't follow through with Canadian, with, with Christmas travel plans. It's just, you know, it, it's beyond the pale. I don't think, again, across political stripes, Canadians are buying this. And I think that a, a lot, a lot of Canadians are expecting more from the government. And I, I know that this is going to be something that parliament is seized with um, after it returns um, from, from, from holiday uh, constituency time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those issues and you kind of alluded to it where it doesn't feel like things that should be working are working. It doesn't feel like there are examples where uh, we, we are seeing even just just basic competence. Like it just seems like a lot of things are a mess. A lot of things are not working and on issues that matter to Canadians. You know, that that's I think why we're, we're seeing maybe this this shift in the polls or at least the volatility with the electorate, because. You know, people are concerned. People have frustrations. And, you know, we're, we're talking about issues that hit close to home. Yeah, like the Liberal government has not shown that they are able to manage government in a way that meets the needs of Canadians. Again, regardless of political strife, be it climate change, travel, um, job creation, uh, inflation, uh, housing affordability. I mean, I could go on. And at that there comes a point where Canadians are like, look, you've had a lot of time, Liberal government. You can't blame Stephen Harper 
nearly a decade after you've been in government for the failures that we're currently experiencing, particularly given that the federal Liberals have almost doubled the size of the Canadian debt. Canadians are paying far more for services. They're paying a lot of tax. And a lot of particularly young Canadians are saying, look, I don't see the same prospects for the future that my parents did or my grandparents did. And that's, I think, a political dynamic that's emerging that the government is not addressing right now that will be pervasive in upcoming uh, elections, uh, both at the provincial level and federal level across the country this year and beyond. Well, it's interesting. I know you, you've got a, a Substack page. It's uh, michellerempelgarner.substack.com. We're talking about some of these big issues, right? But, you know, you've been writing recently about some of these these kind of underreported issues or issues that are falling under the radar that, that could really have an impact, maybe this year, maybe in the years ahead. I mean, what, what are some of the things we should be keeping an eye on? Well, thanks for mentioning that. I'm trying to write longer-form pieces doing exactly what you said, drawing attention to issues that are underreported in the Canadian media, but also trying to provide some nuance to the political debate that sometimes you can't just provide on Twitter or Facebook. Um, You know, so what I've written about so far is I I have a big concern about uh, the auto sector and the auto loan sector, that there's a lot of sort of frothiness similar to what we saw in the subprime um, home loan sector in 2008 that led up to the financial crisis. I've talked about um, uh, the the change of demographic. For example, anybody who's sort of 35 and under, that younger demographic in Canada is about to become the largest voting cohort in the country. And a lot of the issues that are unique to that cohort aren't really being addressed by any political party. Um, And I've also talked about things like artificial intelligence. how that's going to potentially and is already disrupting the Canadian economy, but it's not really a topic of political discourse in Parliament. And I think that these issues, these macro level issues that affect Canadians in a really meaningful way, all political parties have a duty to address them. Uh, They don't have to have the same policies on it, but we need to be talking about these things so that, you know, the Canadian economy, the, the Canadian voter isn't caught in a situation where, we're being impacted by issues that we have no solutions for. And we can't be stuck in political discourse that are, you know, 10, 15 years old now. So, you know, that's my job as an elected official, and I'm really open to receiving feedback from people and trying to push issues that might not be on the front burner but need to be. So that's what I'm writing about this month while the House is in recess. Very interesting. Much more is mentioned. michellerumpelgarner.substack.com. Michelle, we'll leave it there. Always great catching up. Appreciate making some time for us. Thanks for having me. All the best. You as well. There you go. That's a conservative uh, member of parliament, Calgary Nose Hill, Michelle Rempel-Garner. Uh, in terms of what's uh, going on in Ottawa these days, parliament's still adjourned, obviously, for the winter break. But I don't know. Is this a year that's going to bring us a federal election? That's an interesting question. Uh, and obviously part of that speaks to what Justin Trudeau envisions for his own future. That F-35 might be Stephen Harper's dream, but I can tell you, for Canadian taxpayers, it'll be a nightmare. Well, that was then, as in 2015. It would be a nightmare, even though Stephen Harper dreams of buying F-35s, Justin Trudeau said. He made it clear that if he was prime minister, the Liberals formed government in the election that year, we would not not be purchasing F-35. And a new Liberal government won't buy the overpriced F-35 stealth fighter jet. Like I say, that was then, 2015. Fast forward to today, January 9th, 2023. Today, I am announcing that Canada is acquiring a new fleet of 88 state-of-the-art F-35 fighter jets through an agreement that we have finalized with the United States government and Lockheed Martin with Pratt & Whitney. This investment is estimated at $19 billion, making it the largest investment in our Royal Canadian Air Force in 30 years. Yeah, the ultimate life cycle uh, cost of all of this may be closer to $70 billion. And and look, we need new fighter jets. That's been the case really for, you know, two decades or more. So maybe better late than never, but this seems like a, an unnecessary delay and, and with additional costs. But yes, buying new fighter jets, 
and and furthermore, you know, we're going to be spending a lot more with this whole uh, shipbuilding project. We are going to be spending more on defense. You know, whether that is is the right way to get to these targets that we've agreed to with NATO or NATO allies spending two percent of GDP on defense spending is open for debate. But there, there's long been a need to increase defense spending. You know, that, that as our next guest argues in a piece uh, in the uh, National Post, that Canada needs to start pulling its own weight. Uh, are things moving in that direction? Well, joining us to talk more about this issue, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, the author of the uh, piece I just referenced, which as mentioned, you can find at nationalpost.com, Andrew Richter, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. Professor Richter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Just on, on the day where the F-35 purchase has been announced, and I mean, this obviously ties into all of this, uh, that, that we need new fighter jets. That's where we need to open the purse strings. But the path we've taken to get here, what, what do you make of it all? Well, it's a long path, uh, full of false starts and uh, early exits. Uh, you could, I could spend the next hour <laughs> or two or longer discussing it, but that wouldn't be much point. It's been going on for decades, and and I actually am surprised to read the news today. I didn't think that this news would ever come. I think a lot of observers of Canadian defense were skeptical yeah. that it would come. But um, but here we are. The Liberals, you played the clip there. Uh, Trudeau said categorically seven years ago that he wouldn't purchase it. And... Uh, in the initial years of the Trudeau government, it looked like they were going to make sure that they would keep that promise. But there were so many uh, developments that occurred in the period from 15 to, let's say, 20, 16 to 20, that I think ultimately resulted in the contract today. But the, the biggest single one was the difficulty that the government got into with Boeing, which is, of course, another major U.S. defense contractor. But somehow Boeing got dragged into a Canadian commercial trade dispute involving Bombardier, which ultimately uh, ended in Boeing being essentially kicked out of the competition, which left only the F-35 and the Swedish airplane, if you can believe it, as the two final contenders. And there was never any way we were going to purchase a Swedish aircraft, even if it's very good. Mm-hmm. We just we couldn't do it. Interoperability and all sorts of industrial concerns would ensure that. So, so we've come to the logical conclusion of a let's say a forty-year process, thirty-year <laughs> process. Which I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite an indictment of of how we do procurement. I mean, not even just on on military matters, but perhaps more so when it comes to the Canadian forces. I mean, the shipbuilding projects, uh, another one where where the costs are, you know, seem to be skyrocketing. This is going to be incredibly expensive too. I mean, procurement is different than operational funding, and I suppose if we want to look at this in in terms of the GDP context, you know, these big expenditures are at least going to make Canada look good over the next you know few years here in terms of what we're spending on defense. But does it address these? these underlying issues not so much it's it's always tricky to figure out sort of exactly where the money is coming from dnd uh, has said and the government has said that the money is there for both the um, fighter aircraft program which was announced today and the shipbuilding project Mm -hmm. Uh, as i pointed out in my piece last week i I don't see that i I don't see how that's even conceivable the uh, the f-35 project alone is going to tax Canada's procurement budget, which is not very large. The, the annual budget in any given year might be 4 or $5 billion, which is, you know, it's not nothing. But, but, these pro, but, that, but, but there are multiple programs that are, you know, working their way through the system at any given time. So it's not like we can dedicate that entire pot of money toward the F-35. Right. It doesn't work that way. And... And so that, and the F-35 is going to be an enormous expenditure. But then you put on top of it the the frigate building project, the, the shipbuilding project, and whose costs are are just astonishing. They are astonishing. Uh, the latest estimate, which you know perhaps viewers have seen, these ships are going to run anywhere from between two billion and five billion dollars a ship. It's it's just outrageous. It is outrageous. Yeah. And and the life you, you mentioned the life cycle cost, the life cycle costs of the 
shipbuilding project are, are well, I forget the final number, but it's into the hundreds of billions. So money is truly, you know, quite staggering. And I don't think it's there. Well, yeah, that's a whole other question. It's interesting how, you know, the, the government is now boasting of these price tags. Like it's, you know, it's, the minister said today, this is the biggest expenditure in however many decades, which I guess is right. technically true. But, you know, it, it also raises some of the questions about why it needs to be that way. But in terms, though, of, of ensuring that the military has what it needs, part of that's procurement. Part of it is about supporting, you know, the men and women in the Canadian forces, yeah. overall defense spending. Where are we at on that? Well, as I point out in the piece, we're not we're not good. You know, I think most people are aware of that now. Um, we're we're sitting at about 1.3 or one maybe if if you uh, round it up closer to 1.35 percent of GDP. The NATO target, of course, I think most people know now is two. You know, Canada. This isn't new. We've been low spenders for a long, long time. What what is different? Since the war, in, the war in Ukraine, which is almost now coming up on a full year right. uh, in just a matter of weeks, what's happened is that three of our fellow low defense spenders in NATO, these are sort of mid to large NATO members, uh, and they'd be Germany, Spain, and Italy, have all recently announced that they will hit the targets. Now, the timetables are unclear. You know, they, they might be many years out. In fact, most of these, I don't think most of these states have been very specific about when they're going to hit them. But they have made that commitment. Okay, the governments have said, we are committed to hitting the NATO target. Canada, on the other hand, has made no such statement. Right? We have, we have made, we've really said nothing about the NATO target. And, 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 and the Prime Minister doesn't like to talk about it. So, it's pretty clear from our silence that we're, we're not committed to target, even though we are committed to the, uh, uh, the directives that NATO's passed that outline the target. We voted in favor of the target. Yeah. It's just we don't really seem to have any true intention of, meet, of meeting it. It's, 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 it's tricky, right? It's, it's tricky. And, and we've gotten away with this. For many, many years, but I think now, given those three major countries have announced their plans to hit the target, I think the pressure is going to increase on Canada from, from many quarters. What's well, the thing, right? I mean, it's it's about how we're perceived internationally. It's about our reliability as an ally. And and yeah, you know, maybe Canadians have bigger priorities than, than defense spending, but, you know, this stuff matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I conclude the piece by saying I, I often say in my classes here in, here in well, I teach it in Windsor, which is that Canada, you know, we once had an important voice on the international stage. Uh, and we had it for, for multiple decades after the Second World War. We don't anymore. I don't think anyone really questions the fact that we don't. And there are multiple reasons for why we don't. And I could, you know, spend the next hour discussing that. But one of those reasons probably an important one, is that we don't spend much money on defense. Countries make a point of noticing these things. Spending money on defense is one way, one, but it's an important way of, of, of the manners in which countries sort of make sense of other countries. And we're not, we're not spending much money on the military, and that sends a notice to countries internationally that we're not pulling our weight. Just mentioned the pizza's up at uh, nationalpost.com. Great piece, Andrew. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank the best. You. That is Andrew Richter, an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor, you know, addressing the bigger issue here of defense spending and, you know, that we've underfunded the military, there are consequences to that, uh, and that it's time for us to start pulling our own weight. And obviously these alliances, NATO, you know, NORAD, uh, relationship with the United States, this is all hugely important. But we can't be free riders. We can't be freeloaders, right? We can't expect other countries to carry the load and, and then we stand and, and benefit from these alliances and these relationships. We need to be reliable partners or, you know, we'll find ourselves on the sidelines.
Let me play the longer answer here when the uh, getting back to the F-35 fighter jets and the announcement from the defense minister today. It'll be interesting to hear the prime minister himself address this. At some point, presumably, he's on his way to Mexico City uh, for the summit with the uh, American and, and Mexican presidents. Uh, so it was the defense minister, Anita Anand, who made the announcement today, and she was asked very specifically about this pretty obvious flip-flop. This was this process was delayed a lot because your government, when it came to power, the prime minister was very dismissive of the F-35, so it just didn't work. Um, and now, seven years later, you're now getting around to, to actually sending in a purchase order. Um, was he wrong then, and, and uh, what, what changed uh, if he wasn't? Well, let me say, Glenn, that this is a highly complex procurement. It represents the most significant investment in the RCAF in 30 years. And since 2015, the aircraft has matured. And we see now that many of our allies, eight countries in particular, are using the F-35. And Glenn, I am focused on ensuring that we deliver for the Canadian Armed Forces and for our country, as well as our multilateral obligations. And with this aircraft, which, as I said, has matured, we are doing just that. Up to date, up to you, Rob Breckenridge. Talk on FM, QR Calgary. Up the center and coming in as Lube. Newendike centered it. McDonald scores. Andy McDonald. And McDonald showed you a 26-year-old shot by a 36-year-old man as he put it up and over Patrick Waugh. Well, as far as final goals scored go, that was a pretty big one. The last goal scored in a storied 16-year career, a career that capped off by co-captaining the Stanley Cup claims to Stanley Cup glory in 1989. Next guest is also a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. His number nine hangs in the rafters at the Saddle Dome. He has been honored multiple times for his sportsmanship, his leadership, his humanitarian work. He is and remains, of course, an icon in the city. And, of course, the mustache remains undefeated. The one and only Lanny McDonald is here with us this afternoon. Lanny, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? Well, it's always great to uh, visit with you guys, and uh, hopefully uh, 2023 is treating you well. Well, and likewise to you, of course. You know, I, I, I hear from people all the time. You're uh, still a regular fixture, of course, uh, at the Flames games. Uh, you know, it's been an up-and-down season, just first of all. What, what do you make of the team this year? You know, it has been up and down. Uh, I don't think they uh, ever anticipated this before the season started. I thought Brad Trey Living and his staff did a phenomenal job uh, when uh, all of a sudden Johnny uh, Goudreau left. Yeah. And then Matthew decided, well, I want to go to greener pastures in Florida. And I thought he did a phenomenal job in reworking the, the entire lineup, bringing in Kadri, bringing in Huberdeau, uh and Uyghur. Uh but it's been <laughs> very uh, hot and cold. Uh, two good games, two bad games, uh, one and one. And they got to find a way to get on a roll here and uh, make sure they can put four or five games together. That's interesting. And you, you got a unique perspective as, as a former captain, as a former leader, right? And, and, and you know, 1989 or the 88 89 season was unique because. You were co-captain, right? So you had different captains. Uh, obviously, the Flames uh, have not yet named uh, a C. They haven't assigned the C. They've they've got alternate captains, and so that's been a source, I guess, of maybe some confusion or debate. But like I say, you got a unique perspective on that. What do you make of that? You know, uh, I, I don't think it, uh, I don't think it hurts them not having a C. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I like a team that has a C. You have a go-to guy. Uh, but if you look all the way back to 89, we had three co-captains, uh, uh, Jim, uh, Timmy Hunter, and myself. Uh, and especially down the stretch, there were times where one or two of us were not in the lineup. Yeah. Uh, that's what happens when you get older. 
you fight for it when you come in. You're trying to make sure you get as much ice time as possible. And the same thing happens when you're close to retirement. And you know what? Uh, uh, it worked out great for us, but we had like probably 10 guys on that team could have been a captain yeah. uh, all the way down through the lineup. You had great leadership and uh, it certainly worked out well for us. And it's probably the biggest reason why we won the cup, uh, great leadership uh, up and down. That's right. Yeah. You don't need a, a letter to be a leader, right? No, you really don't. And you, you look at guys uh, like, uh, uh, El McGinnis or uh, Brad McCrimmon or Joel Otto or Dana Merson or Jamie McCown, Colin Patterson. That list just goes on and on. Uh, Dougie Gilmore or Joey Mullen. Uh, so you don't need that. You obviously need to pick your spots and know when to say something and when to just leave it alone. And uh, I think I think they're going to be fine here. Uh, obviously, uh, the goaltending hasn't been where it should be, but is that a product of uh, the defense core, the forwards not coming back to help out? Uh, there's so many different factors go into it. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you rattle off some of the names of what was just such an incredible roster that year. Uh, you had a bit of a reunion 20 years ago, the first Heritage Classic, and we just had the announcement recently about another edition of the Heritage Classic coming up next year. And I know a lot of fans are hoping to see some of those names. You're secluded, obviously, back uh, on the skates, back in the uniform. Anything, uh, you know, hammered out? Yeah, what can you tell us about uh, the upcoming Heritage Classic? No, you know what? I don't really know a whole lot about it. I was excited when I uh, saw that, holy smokes, they're going to uh, do it again. Yes, we would have loved it uh, being back in Calgary, but uh, I think the first one overall was Montreal and Edmonton. In uh, Edmonton, I was at that. That was might have been one of the coldest days you could possibly imagine uh, playing an outdoor game, but it was fantastic. Uh, and it's more of a celebration of the game uh, for not only uh, the players, uh, past and present, uh, but also especially the fans. Well, hopefully, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll see you out there. That's going to be an interesting event uh, next year as the Heritage Classic returns. Uh, it's interesting, too. Uh, you know, you're, you're, of course, you're the, uh, the chair at the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. You're also, of course, a, a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, I did want to ask you about that that role and just how unique a role that is and, and how important this institution is. Talk a bit about, the, you know, the work you do with the Hockey Hall of Fame and why, why that's so important to you. Well, first of all, if, if you love the game and love the history of the game, uh, what better position could you have than being chairman of the hall? And uh, you get two five-year terms. I'm in uh, year seven uh, at this point, or the second uh, year of uh, the second five-year term. And it has been an absolute blast uh, 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 getting to uh, to know the not only our, our own staff, but uh, the people that come through the doors each and every day uh, hosting events uh, which are back as big and, and wonderful as ever after getting through COVID. Uh, his surviving COVID in the first place was a tremendous challenge uh, uh, and we're just kind of back uh, to the numbers that we had before. Uh, but to be able to, to get through that and uh, uh, come out the other side and in great shape. And that that goes hand in hand with the work of the 32 or 34 full-time staff that are there. We probably have another 75 to 90 part-time staff that come in uh, and out each and every day. And I, I love it. Uh, it has been an absolute uh, blessing to be able to stay in the game and do something that uh, you love and try and promote the hall as best as possible. Should also note, of course, just recently you were named to the Order of Hockey in Canada. A unique honor, but I'm, I'm sure quite a, a, an amazing honor from from your perspective. Your, your reaction to that? Well, it certainly was. And to uh, be named at the same time as uh, Kim St. Pierre, who yeah. just went into uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame a year ago, 
and Guy Lafleur. Uh, and I loved watching Guy. Uh, I got caught so many times on the bench, uh, just admiring him flying up and down the ice, hair flowing out the back. <laughs> and to be able to n- be named at the same time, what an honor it was uh, to be able to go in with uh, those two uh, great players. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Guy Lafleur, of course. Uh, we talk about the Hockey Hall of Fame. Gil Fleur was one of the future Hall of Famers who was on that 1976 Canada Cup roster. I believe, what, 18 Hall of Famers were on that team? I know we've been focused a lot on the 72 team with the 50th anniversary. But man, oh man, that 1976 team, if people don't know, go back, look up the list, the roster of that that team, which of course included Lanny McDonald. That was just, that was incredible. So you got to play with you know, Gil Fleur and all these, these other legends too. Oh, it it was so much fun, uh, and I didn't play the first couple of games, uh, but to be able to name that, be named to that team, <clears throat> and then to play with a guy that I had great respect for all the way through uh, my career, uh, Bob Gainey, and my old center Iceman, who's still my best friend today. We don't talk about goals and assists anymore. We yeah. talk about kids and grandkids, yeah. uh, which is so much fun. And uh, to to have been drafted uh, same year as Bob Gainey play pretty much every game uh, head to head with him and retire at the same time and go into the hall together, but especially be on that so-called checking line in '76 was so much fun. Of course, uh, you know, we, we recently lost Guy Lafleur and, and such a huge blow to the hockey world and someone else who you played with and, and were close with, Borja Salming. You know, such a, an amazing player, transformational player in a lot of ways and, and also just a, a great guy. I mean, you know, what, what can be said about, about these two, right? Well, I, I had the greatest respect for Borja. Borja, in my opinion, might have been one of the top five, six defensemen of all time. But what he did to open the doors for so many other uh, European players uh, to be able to come over into the National Hockey League, he really paved the way. And uh, how he played each and every day, lots of times in those early years, he took such a beating, it, it never bothered him at all. He just kept on coming. And he, he was probably the premier shot blocker I had ever seen uh, coming uh, sideways uh, at the puck, sliding sideways, block the shot, be back up on his feet and throw a saucer pass up to a guy breaking down the wing. Uh, he could just do it all. And what a great teammate, both on and off the ice. And you look at uh, three guys, and there's so many in the last while, Hall of Famers that we've lost, uh, but uh, Mike Bossy, uh, uh, Guy Lafleur, and Boris Salming all in the last short while here. Uh, it's it's devastating to the hockey uh, world and especially the history of the game. Welcome back in conversation with Hockey Hall of Famer Lanny McDonald, and uh, we're just uh, we're interrupted by the uh, the breaking news. Some good news regarding uh, NFL player uh, Demar Hamlin. I mean. You know, you dealt with a lot of injuries uh, during your time in, in pro hockey, Lanny, and I know, you know, the year the Flames won the Cup was the year of that that really scary incident with, with Clint Malarchuk. I mean, it sort of speaks to those those risks, right, that maybe we don't fully appreciate, you know, the, the risks that pro athletes take, and, you know, it's just kind of a moment to, to reflect on, on some of the dangers, isn't it? Certainly was, and, and what great news, uh, especially when he woke up, to ask the the first question being, did we win the game? Yeah. Uh, that that certainly tells the mentality of uh, athlete right there is is you're worried about did you win or lose? Uh, did we uh, come out of it uh, okay? And for him to make a recovery the way he has, and you can't say enough about uh, the first responders, uh, the assistant trainer. And I get all choked up. Uh, the assistant trainer that was on the field uh, and the first guy to really understand what was happening and help make a difference right there with CPR. And, and uh, that that is just outstanding news uh, that he's back in Buffalo. And uh, what a great feel-good story that is. 
It is. And, you know, to, to shift the conversation to talk about your, your life after hockey, and you've obviously been involved in, in a lot, you know, various business ventures, but your your community work and your humanitarian work, which has obviously included Special Olympics, and, and that goes back, my goodness, what, 40 or 50 years almost now for you. <laughs> that's been a real passion. Oh, it really has. Uh, that started in 1974. I uh, got invited to a Special Olympic event uh, for a hockey game with Jim McKinney. Uh, defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I went there not knowing anything about Special Olympics. And we have a saying in Special Olympics, once you've been there once, you're hooked. And I was hooked. And it's been a love affair uh, with both uh, Special Olympics and their athletes uh, ever since. And I could not uh, be prouder of our alumni in Calgary uh, playing such an integral part uh, off of the ice after their playing days are uh, all gone uh, uh, to try and help make a difference for people that are less fortunate. And that that goes from brown bagging to the mustard seed to uh, uh, CP kids uh, to Special Olympics, uh, you name it. And uh, WINS organization. We're, we're very proud of, of what we do off of the ice uh, uh, now that our playing days are all gone. Well, it's uh, great to catch up with you and and, uh, and great for folks still seeing you around town. And uh, real pleasure here this afternoon, Lenny. Thanks so much for making some time for us uh, here today and look forward to chatting again. Uh, look forward to it. Uh, for all the people out there, all the very best in 2023 and go Flames, go. All right, Lenny, all the best. Take care. Bye-bye. There you go. Uh, Lenny McDonald, Stanley Cup winner. Member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, retired number nine, of course, uh, you know, scored 500 goals, over 1,000 points in his NHL career, so part of an, a couple of exclusive clubs. Uh, yeah, my goodness, Team Canada, 1976. You mentioned that. I don't read the whole team, but I know when we get to that 50th anniversary, you know, and it wasn't even Canada versus the Soviets for the, you know, the Canada Cup uh, in that tournament. But, yeah, we've talked about 72 and what they accomplished, but holy cow, Bobby Orr, Dennis Potvin, Bobby Hall, Bill Esposito, Daryl Sidler, Marcel Dion, Guy Lafleur, Bobby Clark, Serge Savard, Bob Gainey, Reggie Leach, Larry Robinson, and yeah, Lanny McDonald. Uh, yeah, what a career. And of course, uh, culminating uh, that last goal in Game 6, the Flames clinched the Stanley Cup in Montreal, and I believe that was also where he scored his first NHL goal, was in Montreal. So what a way to go out as a Stanley Cup champion and uh, obviously very much still a legend in this city, as is the mustache. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.